Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Let's start with um, A Thousand Acres. Um, Jane, tell us how you came to write a novel inspired by a Shakespeare play. Well, I think it, it really began when I was in high school and especially in college. We read King Lear when I was a senior in high school, then we read it again in college. And um, I had a kind of niggling uh, objection to the play. It was all, uh, Lear was always portrayed by my teachers as, um, as the hero of the play and the daughters, um, except for Cordelia, of course, the two, the two older daughters were portrayed as the villains of the play. But I never bought that, really. Um, there's a scene um, early on in the play where Cordelia, I mean, not Cordelia, but Goneril and Regan are discussing how many nights Lear would be allowed to have run riot in the castle. And um, you can sort of see the scene the night before they all got drunk, the dogs got on the table, the tables fell over, the tapestries were pulled down, there was a big mess all over the floor. And, um, and I always felt that Goneril and Regan's objections to that were reasonable, but they were portrayed by my professors as being just the the height of daughterly disloyalty, and um, so that sort of put it in my mind. And then one time I was in upstate New York, and I was actually looking at it was in a McDonald's, and I was looking at some pictures of the Iowa landscape, and. Um, the person who was sitting at me with me said, you know, you could set that King Lear book in Iowa. And I said, bingo. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that's how it came about. Subsequently, I thought about it a lot, and I realized that one of my own problems with Lear, the character, was he never shuts up. And uh, I guess as a, as a theater character, as a person in a play, he can't shut up. What would he do? You know, he can't, he, that's what his job is, to keep talking. But a novelist doesn't like people to keep talking. A novelist likes people to um, be quiet and think for a while. <laughs> and I guess that's why I'm a novelist and not a, um, not a dramatist. Were you trying to write a wrong then in some way, with the way the, the women were portrayed? Yes, I think I was. Especially Goneril. I remember thinking, yes, there is a way that the second daughter always raises the stakes on the first daughter. That was my, my experience of my aunts and, and other sets of girls that I knew. So I, so I thought that was an interesting insight into Reagan and Goneril's relationship. But there was something about Goneril. She, she, she never can ever sort of assert herself um, without either seeming disloyal or else getting trumped by Reagan. So there was a sense I was kind of rethinking who she was. So you didn't cast about over Shakespeare's works thinking, you know, it would be nice to, to write something inspired by Shakespeare, what would work? You'd come into this with this sort of in the back of your mind. And, and it just rose to the surface. What was it about Iowa? You said bingo. It was the landscape. Because um, the, I, I, in order to write a novel, I needed sort of an isolated place for it to take place. I needed a kingdom. 
and um, that there is a kind of ice. The place, the part of Iowa that I think of, is really the north central area where the um, where the farms are quite large and fertile, north of Ames, say north of um, north of Des Moines, t- toward up toward the Minnesota border, and it's really quite isolated there, um, and so that's kind of the kingdom that I thought it took place in. Were you at all nervous about, you know, working with one of the most famous pieces of literature in world history and molding that and bringing something new and contemporary out of it, trying to improve on it maybe? Well, I I should have been nervous. Um, (laughs) I sometimes marvel that I wasn't nervous. But um, I have a friend who um, has talked to me about visual artists and, and how they're quite often intimidated by the paintings that they see. Novelists are never intimidated by literature. Every novelist will take a, a book that everyone else is, considers a standard like War and Peace and say, you know, I could fix that. <laughs> That's, and it's because, it's not because novelists are insane, it's because the novel is an inherently imperfect object. And so there's always some place to get the thin end of the wedge in. And, you know, if I were asked to fix Anna Karenina, I know what I would do. You know, I know what I would tell Leo to do in the next rewrite. (laughs) But that's how novelists think. I've hardly ever met a novelist who didn't um, think he could at least give George Eliot some advice. Gina, why do you think Shakespeare still resonates to this day? Well, there's, I think there are a couple of reasons. The one is that the plays are great, and so I think that that's part of the reason that they do. Um, uh, people keep coming back to them because there's a lot that's there. Um, I also think that that the history of Shakespeare reception has been one that has elevated these plays and made them. Um, uh, accessible and present everywhere. So I think part of the reason why Shakespeare continues to resonate is because we continue to think that Shakespeare resonates. And so people come along in every century and take Shakespeare and try to do something with Shakespeare. And, you know, the, uh, and Jane Smiley's work is, is part of that tradition as well that mm-hmm. has come to these plays and reimagined them. So I think that that's part of the reason there's been a sort of a snowball effect. Um, and that's not to say that the plays aren't fabulous. Um, but there are lots of dramatists writing at the same time as Shakespeare doing actually quite a lot of similar things, but because they haven't had that kind of a history um, of reception, uh, they don't necessarily get the same kind of attention. I know that there are some theater fans, Shakespeare fans, who, who grimace when they go to see a Shakespeare play and, and it's gay Nazis wearing spacesuits and it's been updated in some sort of trendy, <laughs> obscure way. What advice do you give to people who are trying to bring Shakespeare to the stage today? Well, I think that uh, Shakespeare, we have to be careful not to take Shakespeare and raise him up onto such a high pillar that that one can't do anything with the plays. And I think that there's a myth that we can somehow get it right, that is um, sort of, that that, that I would say that uh, Jane Smiley's view of what novelists do is somewhat similar to what a director does. You come to the play and you look at which pieces might not fit. So uh, perhaps if you come as a feminist director to Lear, you say, there's something wrong with where the daughters are here. Where do the daughters fit into this story? And so you bring out the daughter's story through the production. Now, some people will come along and say, 
what have you done? That this is not what Shakespeare had intended, and that somehow you've you've you've, um, you've taken the, the play beyond what it was supposed to be. But I think that there is no sense, clear sense of what the play was supposed to be. So if you can do an interpretation that works, and if that interpretation brings out something new and interesting about the play, then you've done a favor to the play and to your audience. So I think some updating can actually be a, a really powerful interpretive tool. Do you have any oh, idea? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I, we started reading Shakespeare in school in seventh grade. We read Julius Caesar. And as soon as we read Julius Caesar, and we read a play a year through the, through the six years of middle school and high school, um, as soon as we were reading Julius Caesar, we were also learning that Shakespeare was a mysterious figure. And that people didn't know this about him, and people didn't know that about him, and people and people didn't know this other thing about him. If 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 an author is a mysterious figure, then that makes him more malleable than if the author is a well-known figure. And any play, um, any production of a play has to be an interpretation because you have to have these specific actors who have a specific way of being and looking, mm -hmm. and so. You're just going to have to walk down that path anyway, so you might as well walk down it with conviction. <laughs> Gina, do you have any, any way to imagine how Shakespeare might have regarded if he could have heard what Jane was saying about his play and how she treated it? <laughs> you know, to be honest, I think that, um, dare, I, dare I speak for the dead, um, but uh, there, the, the, I think that he probably would have liked it um, in the sense that the plays are, we're not exactly sure what the scripts even looked like originally, but they are very long plays. And they, some have argued, some scholars have argued, that they were meant to be cut. That Shakespeare, this is what one argument is, that Shakespeare wrote long plays with a lot going on in them so that then a director could come along or an actor could come along and take out different pieces and rearrange it to tell whatever story they wanted to tell. So perhaps the plays, are, it, certainly Shakespeare was part of a collaborative theater and we tend to forget that. I mean we sort of think about Shakespeare in a, um, a 19th century way where we assume that he had clear ideas about what he wanted. But he was, he was an actor. He was a shareholder in the company that he, that, that he wrote these plays. He wrote these plays for this company. So he actually saw himself as part of a larger um, creative endeavor. And I think in that sense, um, I mean, he had to be part of that larger group. And so in that sense, there, there was all, all sorts, there's room for all sorts of changes. And the fact that he wrote full characters. The full characters did not have scripted lines necessarily. They could do what they wanted. So by writing in a full character into a play, he was allowing for a certain kind of um, sort of at the moment interpretive decisions to be made and for the play to change constantly. Well, the other thing is he was writing, he took his material from previous sources. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't remember how many plays um, we don't have any idea of where the source was, but at least for King Lear and a lot of others, we have a very clear idea of what the source was, and you can read the source, and you can see that um, he, he changed the material. He took a lot of liberties himself. He did, yeah. and for me that was really important because um, when I was writing King Lear, I tried, I mean, when I was, yes, when I was writing King Lear, and, <laughs> I, I tried to stick as closely to a thousand acres as I possibly could, <laughs> and vice versa. Um, and there were times when I, when I went away from the play, and I, 
and then I would consider that a mistake and I would return to the play. Mm. And as I came to the end of um, A Thousand Acres, I realized that I really had spent a lot of time sort of scratching my head and trying to make this material logical. And my, my relationship to Shakespeare changed. On the one hand, I realized that how alien he, as a Renaissance man, how alien his, the way his mind worked was from mine. But on the other hand, I, feel, I did feel this sense of kinship with him as an artist, sitting there scratching his head and saying, how am I going to how am I going to make this work? How am I going to do the internal logic? Mm-hmm. And I had this wonderful sense of, of standing between two mirrors and, and w- reflecting infinitely backward and infinitely forward. There's also plenty of material on King Lear that indicates that pro- at least a, lo- a few of the themes, the major themes, um, have their origins in folklore, which means that they go way back, um, farther than literacy even. And so I, I began to see myself and Shakespeare as just two toilers mm-hmm. in, this, mm-hmm. in this long sweep of um, the way a certain story gets told. Did and it's fascinating, actually. Did you ever think or wonder what Shakespeare would have made of, of what you were doing? Did you care? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was my production. I I didn't lay claim to the material. People asked me when they made the movie if I what I thought about them making a movie of a thousand acres or what I thought about the movie. And I have to say that I never claimed possession of the material. I always thought Thousand Acres is my production of King Lear. And whatever way that the book or the play goes forward that would become somebody else's mm-hmm. production of King Lear. So, um, no, I would do it my way. Thank you very much, Mr. Shakespeare, but go sit in the audience and be quiet. <laughs> now, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, there's a, a little fleeting Shakespearean allusion from another play in the book, the reference to a pound of flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The... But that's a cliche. I don't know that sure. I constantly... Okay. I, I don't know that I consciously said, oh, I'm going to bring a little Merchant of Venice in here, too. Uh, well, I was just... It just caught my mind because came came to me because you know there's certain things in Shakespeare that <clears throat> that trouble people nowadays, and you know maybe the the treatment of the women in King Lear is one of them, and the the whole notion of the pound of flesh and the the evil Jew. Um, I was just wondering if that was in your mind at the time, or did it just came up as a cliche? No, it just came up as a cliche. Okay. Although what we like to say in, in, in Shakespeare studies is that what's, what's interesting about that is less, you know, whether or not Jane did it, um, it's interesting that it's there, and it has an, uh, it, that, and, and that's what's so great about being able to see where a work goes um, in, its, in its afterlife, which can be quite fascinating. So if one did want to do uh, a sort of a Shylock reading right. of, the, of the daughters, um, it suddenly is presented as an option um, because that pound of flesh is there, and isn't that fabulous. Yeah. Well, you know, I had this experience with my novel, Moo. Um, people would send me letters saying, I know why you named um, so-and-so this, or um, I, know what, I know what it was in Moo, which is a book about a great agricultural university um, set in a very flat area. <laughs> um, uh, someone wrote me and said, well, you named Lionel Gift 
Dr. Lionel gift that because gift means poison or something like that in German. I can't remember what the exact meaning is. And I didn't know that at all. But of course I laid claim to it because <laughs> what you don't know what actually you're drawing on in the, mm -hmm. in the culture. Mm -hmm. And so you as the author throwing the object into the culture, you've drawn on things that you don't, uh, aren't conscious of and you also are referring to things that exist in the culture that are in the reader's mind. And so the, the novel that you have written constantly is opening out. So when people say to me, um, I named uh, the, the, the Goneril character Ginny because a Jenny is a mule and a female mule and that was her job in the uh, on the farm was to carry everything from one place. I think, hallelujah, go for it. You know? <laughs> Gina, how would you um, recommend, uh, well, directors maybe especially, handle the things in Shakespeare that are troublesome to some people nowadays? Hmm. Um, well, I think it can be easy to just take those things and put them aside and pretend they're not there and leave the work as uh, a, a universal masterpiece, right? But I think that the, it's, it's, it's important to take up those sensitivities and to do something with them because director is in an amazing position of power to be able to take these works and translate them for the modern moment. And that that is a responsibility. And I think directors have, just as all artists do, have a chance to um, bring up conversations that others may not want to have. And if it was, you know, if, and it still is, if it's still an issue of, of um, daughters and their relationships to their fathers and the ways that, uh, the, the, in, say, in a farm community, women take on certain kinds of labor roles that are not rewarded, or whether it be um, what it means to be a Jew in a, um, a, a community where there's a lot of anti-Semitism, or whatever, whatever it might be. I do think that directors have um, some responsibility to offer some kind of view on that, or at least get an audience to think about those kinds of issues. Why do you think Shakespeare chose to have Lear's offspring be women? Well, I think um, what's interesting about the play is that you have the two narratives running alongside each other. So on the one hand, you have Gloucester and his sons, who's... Um, it seems like that's going to be a very easy case for talking about the for, for talking about primogeniture, which was the system of of, uh, of handing down belongings from the father to the firstborn son, and that's how inheritance was handled. Um, so you have that scenario, which was the traditional way of doing things. Now, in Lear's family, that's not quite possible, or seems like it might not be possible because there is no eldest son. So by having daughters. Uh, the play raises the problem of primogeniture or it, and helps us sort of bring that back to Gloucester's family and say, well, if it's not going to work here, right, then what about here? Is it going to work in that, in that case? Will, can, we, can we hand the, the land down um, to the firstborn son there? Is that going to be easy? And neither case is easy. So in the play, by having daughters um, for Lear, the play raises these very pressing questions in the time period about what a system of primogeniture is going to look like and whether it can work, whether it's practical. Well, let's, well. Look, at this, let's look at it this way. The source material, they were daughters. And so um, what, he's not making up the story, he's choosing the story. 
And as far as I can remember, he's adding the Gloucester story to it. Mm -hmm. So if, if, I am, if I'm the artist and I'm thinking about this story and I see this piece of source material and it, it tricks something in mm -hmm. me and I think, oh, that's interesting, I'll work with that. Well, in the source material, actually, Cordelia doesn't die and neither does Lear. They go mm -hmm. on to live happily ever after. So um, it's not that, she, I, I don't think it is that Shakespeare made up the idea of the daughters, it's that he saw possibilities in the idea of the daughters. Mm -hmm. He added to it the idea of Gloucester and the two sons, and he let the two things um, coexist and, and comment on mm -hmm. one another. But you, you didn't need to stick with three daughters because that legal inheritance issue was not an issue in 1970s America. Um, but you, you stayed with that because... That's not what I was interested in. I was interested in the, the backstory of the relationship to, of Lear and his daughters and how they got to this point um, at the beginning of the play. The, the interesting thing about the play from, that I thought when I, at both in college and in high school was that um, he was so surprised at how Cordelia acted. Um, he seemed to have no understanding of her so that when she turns down her third of the kingdom, there's obviously some long-standing family dynamic here. But the play has this almost fairy tale-like quality where it begins, um, it begins out of nothing. And and what I was interested in was where did where did all of this come from? These underlying. Um, rivalries and antagonisms mm. and as I did research on the play uh, I, those of you who have read, King Le uh, read A Thousand Acres know that there's a incestuous subtext here and as I did research on the play I discovered that there was on the part of folklorists the feeling that in the earlier material there had been this incestuous subtext and that that's what the material was talking about. Now, did Shakespeare suppress it? Did he understand it? Did he know it was there? It's, that's an interesting question that I don't think mm -hmm. it can be answered. But I chose to say, okay, there's a reason these girls, these older girls, um, have such, are willing to take their antipathy to their father to such extremes, mm -hmm. or not to take it, but to let it go to such extremes. Mm -hmm. And what could that backstory be? And so a novelist always has to offer a theory for why things happen in the book. So the theory I offered was that there was this um, incestuous backstory. Um, and in that sense, it's a director does, has to do the same thing. That is, there's, you've got a play like King Lear, which raises all sorts of questions, and there, there, is, this, the, there is the hint of, of incest that's there. There is the strange scene where Lear is asking his daughters, who loves me most, to announce it. A strange thing, and his weird jealousy about Cordelia and, and her marriage. Well, there's a line where he says, I gave you all. Yeah. Now, nobody like William Shakespeare writes, I gave you all, without some kind of understanding of what the possibilities mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. you know and is it and so um 
Anyway, keep yeah, keep but, Well, no, I mean, I, I, but I, th I think that there's. Uh, well, th go ahead. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> that was the only funny one. Jean, I, I was reading um, a review from back in 1991 of your book, A Thousand Acres, by Ron Carlson, and there was something he wrote at the end, and I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder how Jane would react to that, so I thought, well, I'll just read it to him. He, he wrote at the end, I was reluctant in writing about the novel to invoke King Lear, and it will be invoked, believe me, because I didn't want this story to sound like an exercise, like some clever layered construct. What A Thousand Acres does is to remind us again of why King Lear has lasted. And I was wondering if you would go, ah, thank you so much, or you've missed the point completely, or, or <laughs> something else. Well, you know, my theory is, and I truly adhere to this theory, that the, any novel becomes the possession of the reader. And it's not for me to dictate what the reader, how the reader takes possession of that novel, mm -hmm. simply because I can't read the reader's mind, and so I don't know how it coexists in his mind with other things. Um, I think that Ron Carlson I know slightly, he's a very kind man, I wouldn't have been as kind, um, probably in a review, um, uh, and, but from, from my point of view, I di I'm done with it. Now it's the reader's um, choice how to see it, and the reader, all readers of novels are free to see it however they want. And I think that's the thing I love the most about the novel. Because, and I think for me, maybe the, one of the reasons I wanted to write A Thousand Acres is that I think a novel reader is in some sense freer than an audience member of, at a play because his or her experience of the, of the novel is a private one and not influenced by people sitting next mm. to him or whatever. Gina? It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the sense that there is, um, there is a difference between sitting, uh, well, it depends on how the novel is read, right? That is, one might have a private reading and then sit in a, well, a book club um, <laughs> or, uh, or a true. classroom where that will be read and where the, uh, the interpretation gets shaped in some way. But I, I, I think that's true that sitting in a theater audience, there's a certain energy that goes on mm -hmm. where people laugh and you think, Oh, maybe that's funny. Okay, it is funny. Um, at the same time, I also love the experience of sitting in a theater and not agreeing with what other people are, around me are doing. And that I think that there, are, there can be a, um, I think a, and a particularly good director might even allow, in the same way as a good novelist might, allow for those kinds of different readings and, and, and different reception um, of, of, the, of the piece. So um, I do think that there can be these moments when one sits in a theater audience and somebody laughs and you think, no, that's not funny. Funny. I, I'm not comfortable with laughing at that. And that becomes an interesting moment where the audience too becomes a little you know, a microcosm of, of, of a world reception, perhaps. Jean, yeah. do, um, do you watch Shakespeare plays? Do you I read don't Shakespeare hardly much? ever watch plays. Yeah. Um, I like, I, I like the theater, but I noticed I went, I was just in London and I went to an Alan Eggborn play called Living Together, which some of you might be familiar with. It's six characters in one family. And I nearly got up and left, not because it was a bad play, but because I felt I've seen enough family bickering in my life. I, I, and these are really good bickerers, and so they're quite effective. And I felt quite uncomfortable with them. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something about the nature of the theater that... Um, 
has driven me away, sort of. Yeah, there um, is no distance in the theater. I mean, there right. can be. In some plays, there can be distance. But, mm -hmm. um, but in, in a lot of theater, because those are, are, live, those are people there, yeah. and, and they're, they have bodies that are right there, and you can smell them, and you can... Um, I mean, there's, a, there's something about that sensual presence that makes it all quite, um, uh, quite an assault. It can be quite an assault yeah. on the senses. The other thing is, as I've gotten older, I've, become, I've embraced the novel more and more as a, just an activity and a pastime. Um, I hardly watch TV. I do see movies, but um, uh, my main pleasure is reading novels. And the more I read, the more I want to read. I mean, you could, I could spend the rest of my life reading the works of Anthony Trollope. It would take a really long time, and then I could go on to the works of Joyce Carol Oates. And then there's all of Balzac in addition to that. So the, the more I, the older I get and the more novels I read, the more hungry I get to read novels, which means that there's less time to do other things. Do you think if Shakespeare had written King Lear as a novel, that you would still have been inspired to write your own novel from it? Hmm. Yes. Because I, Boccaccio wrote um, the Decameron as a novel, or as a novel-like book, and I was inspired by that to write my own version of that. Um, so, and, and I read all those Icelandic sagas, and I was inspired to write the Greenlanders. So I guess the answer to that would be likely, to, likely so. <laughs> Do you think um, Shakespeare could have been a novelist, Gina? Do you think he would have been a novelist if he'd lived a bit later? Or do you think he was, he's so inherently a dramatist that that's hmm. what he is and was? Hmm. Well, I guess it depends on how you want to define the novel. Um, and I, I think that as far as, I mean, if you're going to think about the novel as representing interior experiences, then no, I think the plays are very much, they are dramas in the sense that we don't get to hear what characters think. And even when they get up and soliloquize, we still don't know what they think. Really? Yeah. I was just talking to my graduate students about this, that um, in, in Shakespeare's day, the, um, the soliloquy was in fact a moment of, the soliloquy is understood to be a moment of sharing, of like confession. Um, and not quite the sort of overhearing that we think of it today as Could being. be complete lies. Well, exactly. So you might go to confession and, you know, say to the priest whatever you think the priest wants to hear. Uh, to some extent, the soliloquy can perform that function. So I do think that even soliloquies, even these moments where we think we're going to hear the inside ticking, um, are in fact moments of performance. So I think the plays are utterly performative. I mean, I think they're very interested in how, um, how, how, how people perform on the stage that is their lives. I mean, I, King, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I actually addressed this question in the, in the book I wrote about the history of the novel called The Thir 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. And I, I think that, there, that the soliloquies and the asides were um, a gesture by Shakespeare toward point of view, toward locating and using point of view. And Shakespeare lived around the same time as, Don, as uh, Cervantes, who was writing Don Quixote at the same time. And if you read a bunch of Shakespeare plays and Don Quixote um, uh, together, you see that they're both wrestling with how to address this issue of point of view. Um, Don, Cervantes does not know how to go inside his characters very well. Um, and so, 
lots of times he has them yakking it up about, this is in the first half of Don Quixote, which was written in 1605, I think. Second half, he's figured it out a little better, as written in 1615. But, um, and, and Shakespeare, as he's using soliloquies and asides, is trying to break the sort of spectacle-like um, aspect of the theater and to find point of view. So I, I don't know. You know, maybe if they'd been friends, they would have tried a few things. One of the interesting things is that um, I believe, and this might, um, I might just be wrong on this, but I think it's true, that there are some, some um, there's a couple of stories in Don Quixote that Shakespeare had been working on with regard to a play um, late in his life, um, toward at the end of his life. And so I wonder if he didn't read Don Quixote and he didn't think, you know, hmm, hmm, what's next? You know, what could I do with this material? How could I? Um, so to me, the, liter the, the literary world at, at the beginning of the 17th century was in a great deal of flux. And um, it was not clear um, what the, the best form to use for certain things was. And so Cervantes tried some drama-like things um, Shakespeare tried some point of view offerings and and then basically these two forms went their separate ways. The the soliloquies notwithstanding, when you watch a play you're usually just watching things unfold, but with a book you can have this omniscient narrator so we're just watching what's happening. Or you can do like you did in this book, you have you choose one of the characters and that person's mm -hmm. a narrator. Why did you decide to make a narrator for this story, and why did you choose Ginny, who is the equivalent of Goneril in King Lear? Well, my original purpose was to, for the girls to tell their side of the story, so that's, that, went, that was part of the whole package. And I chose her because I felt that she was less sure of herself, and that if I had chosen Rose, who was based on Reagan, she would have been too sort of shrill and angry, and so there wouldn't have been any variation in the tone of the novel. So I chose Jenny because she was, her voice was more, let's say, various, or could be made to be more various. And Gina, how do you think King Lear would be different if Goneril were the narrator, the person through whom we experience the play? Hmm. Well, it would probably look a little bit more like <laughs> Thousand Acres. Um, but I suppose it's, I mean, directors have tried to tell the story from the daughter's perspective. Um, I don't know about Goneril in particular, but that is that some directors have taken on that older traditional view of this is about uh, Lear, a man sinned against, more sinned against than sinning, and I've actually said, well, wait a minute, let's take a look at the daughters. Judy Dench played this as a stuttering, um, uh, what she, she was st stuttered in front of her father in, in that production. So the idea was that the father made her nervous and that he was this overbearing, who did she um, play? Um, she played Goneril. Am I remembering huh. this right? Somebody who might know. I'm pretty sure she played Goneril. Um, so uh, in, in that case, there's this 
sense, again, that sort of uncertainty, um, that it is possible to tell the story from the stage, um, still using the script, uh, and still tell the story from the daughter's perspective. And that's been you know, one of the things that feminist directors have tried to do. Here's that, something I'd like to mention. Um, in about 99 or 2000, I went to a Shakespeare, a World Shakespeare Symposium that was in LA. And it, I think the symp it was called Shakespeare in the Modern World or something like that. And one of the um, guests, one of the academics from Cambridge was a woman, maybe she was 65 or 70 at the time. And she said that she, she, her research told her that at the same time that Shakespeare was writing King Lear or sometime before that and during that time, his father was suffering from senile dementia. And um, that really changed the way I looked at King Lear because then I saw that what we see as a kind of um, sort of stick figure quality in the girls, in the daughters, could come from the idea that Shakespeare is portraying himself in all three of the daughters. And that he, there are part, that the three sides of his response to his father's dementia are um, portrayed. One is a little bit um, unsure of herself, but, but, but not very positive toward dad. One is quite hostile, and one wants to treat dad properly. And the play is, and this woman felt that the play was about the war within William Shakespeare, about how the best to treat dad. And, and that struck me as a good way to look at the kind of um, one-dimensional quality that the daughters always seem to have. And it also struck me as a very realistic way to look at the way a person feels confronted with the unreasonable demands of the of the dementia, the demented old mm -hmm. dad. And I mean, I think even if we don't take the biographical um, approach there, you could still say that in the early modern English culture, just sort of generally, these sorts of issues were, I mean, it was a, as big of a problem then as it is now. What do you do with an aging father, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do when he retires? Um, what can he do? And this is a gerontocratic society where right, the power goes, goes with, with, the, with the elder. And yet once that elder retires, um, it, particularly in that culture, um, he no longer has the kind of power he had before. He doesn't have um, power over material, you know, material life in the same way. So what do you, what do you do then do with that figure if we're defined by our work and by our belongings? then what happens when you're no longer working or no longer have those belongings? So they had those same sorts of anxieties. And I think it's true that what the play does, um, even if you don't take it from a biographical sort of Shakespeare, Shakespeare's biography, the play looks at what it means to be aging in this kind of culture and then the, the different ways that one might then respond to that, the, the, the aging uh, gerontocrat. I think there's another way to look at it, which um, is a political way, because... I, Shakespeare, the play was written in what, 1607, is that right? Or a little earlier. 1604, maybe. And um, who was on the throne but James I? James I had plenty of parental issues, considering that he had betrayed his mother and 
seen her executed by Queen Elizabeth and therefore became king. And so if you look at it that way, you've you got to think, whoa, he's pretty brave to put this on the stage, you know, with everybody knowing what the succession had been in just quite recently. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember what year Mary Queen of Scots was executed, but um, I think it was 1690 or 1590 or something like that. Do you think, Gina, do you think these political subtexts were very obvious to the audiences in Shakespeare's time, or would they have been somewhat abstract even to people then? In other words, would, if we could talk to people who were fans of Shakespeare at the time, would they be saying, man, he was a really political guy, you know? I think it probably depended on the audience member. As much as today, you're going to have different kind, I mean, and especially Shakespeare's audience was, uh, was d d d widely different in terms of their, um, their literacy and their um, uh, class and the status. I mean, very, very different kinds of audience members seeing the plays at the same time. So I think some certainly would have been aware of those political contexts. At the same time, they, if they didn't have that context, they might have the one that there was uh, at the, the time of this play, there was actually uh, a, a trial going on of, uh, of, um, uh, of, of, of a father had done sort of what Lear did actually in this time period, tried to, uh, had, had three daughters and, and had done the same sort of thing. So that was also a context. So what you have are multiple kinds of influence as much as we have mm -hmm. today. And um, so we don't know where the dramatists get those ideas. And I think to go back to the earlier conversation we were having, you don't know which sorts of inferences the audience might have, but um, I think certainly all of those were, 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 were possible. Yeah, I think to imagine that the, that the British, the English people in London in that time were not politically engaged is purely naive. Um, they may not have been outspoken. Uh, I read an interesting book, and I know it's not particularly well thought of, but it, it propounded the idea that Shakespeare was Catholic and that there was a lot of coded communication in all of the plays about um, Catholicism as a sort of insurrectionary um, force in British life, and, or in English life, not British life. And um, I, I know that this book is not particularly well thought of, or this theory is not particularly well thought of, but it really struck me because it made me realize, it made me think of Shakespeare as a person who may have had very strong subversive feelings and ideas, who has been subsumed into his culture as Mr. Um, establishment. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be like me and all my writings on the Huffington Post being taken over by the future right wing and used to, pro and, and use American right wing, and used to elevate their culture. And um, so I think Shakespeare is partly interesting because we really don't know what political um, things he was trying to express, and yet we cannot believe, given his culture and his time, that he had no views. Gina, is there anything that Shakespeare wrote other than the, the sonnets and the plays that tells us explicitly what he thought about important things? 
No, I mean, it's all, it's a mystery, as Shakespeare in Love puts it. Um, that there, there are a lot of mysterious things about Shakespeare that we don't know. At the same time, I would say that um, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea not to pin too much on Shakespeare the man. I mean, I still want to underscore that point. Because the plays are, they're complex beasts. And we don't exactly know where, it's, like I said, the fools are writing some of the lines. So is that Shakespeare? Is that somebody else? Did somebody adapt the plays in their own time mm-hmm. and produce something new? It's really hard to know. But I do think that they are creatures of their time um, as well. And that I think we can, we can certainly see the ways that whether or not Shakespeare is looking around his, 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 the, the, the society around him and sort of picking out what he wants to say or engaging um, explicitly in his own way with those political questions, I think he's, he can't help but represent them because they're everywhere. And he's talking about the ruling class. I mean, he can't be doing that in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, this would be a whole different topic, Gina, but just since you're here, do you believe that there was I, I, do you believe there was a man called Shakespeare who wrote all the plays or most of the plays that are described there? No, no, this debate. Um, well, I do think that there was a man named Shakespeare. Um, we have some record of that. Um, I, I think that he likely was involved in writing uh, these plays, although I don't think on his own. Um, and now I'm not saying that we have to necessarily say, well, who did he write with and who wrote which parts and so forth. But if I can evade the question, I guess I would say that um, I, when, I, when I teach undergraduate Shakespeare here, I always start the first day of class by saying, okay, this is the debate, right? This is the debate that many of you may have heard of, um, of you know, who was Shakespeare, what did he write? And I think that I, what I do in that lecture is say, okay, well, here's what we know, and here's everything we don't know. And so now, let's put that aside and say, what do we do now, right? We can either continue to throw up our hands and say, well, we don't know, we don't have this information, and so we can't proceed. Or we can say, well, we have the works, right? We have the works in front of us, and so if we keep focused on the authorship question, then it's not going to get us very far. I mean, in my view, it doesn't get us very far. And that I think it prevents us from being able to do all the interesting things that people do with the plays when they, when they sort of lose the, uh, the sort of the, 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 give up being intimidated by that author and say, okay, well, just, you know, just as you, whether you're doing it in the 19th century or you're doing it in the, in the tw- 21st century, just say, well, what can I do with this play now? I have to say... Um... If you have to, if you're going to say Shakespeare was a fake or didn't exist, then you have to say Webster didn't exist, Turner didn't exist, Johnson didn't exist. Um, To me, they're all equal. They all have equal claims to existence. And if the others existed, he existed. That's how I work it out in my mind. Because there would, there's no way that there would be a singular non-existent guy in um, in a very (laughs) gossipy. Um, very um, busy uh, sort of small group. I, I, was just conscious, I was just in London, as I said last week, and I was among the literati. And I was struck again by what a small group it was. So it would be a... And it, and it has always been a small group, and they've always been in London, and they've always been talking about one another. And they've always been very conscious of each other's origins, and they've always been very conscious of each other's reputations. This is a continuous thing from, um, say, Chaucer's time to our time. So 
why would there be this one outstanding guy for whom there was no evidence or there was no testimony that he was a fake? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just don't see it. It's getting close to six o'clock and we, we like to leave time for audience Q&A. So if any of you have a question for Jane and or Gina, then stand up and let us hear it. And I will have to say it back because it's being televised and it's gonna be broadcast. So uh, we don't have microphones in the audience. Does anyone have a question? Yes. Would, would, we, would I be surprised if Shakespeare also had incest in mind? Um, um, given a few um, of the a, a few of the lines, the one I the one I mentioned before, I gave you all. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, but you know, I it's hard for me to read the Renaissance mind and the idea and and what how prominent sexuality is in the Renaissance mind. I have no idea. So. We do um, get incest in other plays. Um, Shakespeare gives us father-daughter incest in Pericles, for instance. Oh, see, that's um, what I have. So there read, are yeah. these. There are those. Uh, Shakespeare's interested in incest. Merchant of Venice. Merchant of Venice. Any other questions? Relationship between the Winter's Tale, a Winter's Tale, and King Lear. Yeah. Do you want to Go talk ahead. about that? Oh, you know, I think that when Shakespeare picked, took up the material of King Lear, he really was asking. Um, what is love? And the answer he came up with was that it was sort of an animal thing um, where you tried to do, you tried to get what you could from those who were around you and in order to pay for that you gave them whatever you had. It was very much based in, in nature, in physicality, and in a kind of quid pro quo. And then, and then he came along some years later, and he, and he turned to the material in Winter's Tale, which is not terribly dissimilar from King Lear. And he, he specifically answered the question of what is love, because um, the character of, what's her name, the, 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 the nagging one? Uh, pa Paulina. Paulina. Mm -hmm. um, she um, is constantly after, she's the one Lear needs, she's constantly after, what's his name? Leontes, um, to, to redeem himself for the things that he's done, one of which is to um, supposedly um, kill his wife at, out of, in a jealous rage and send his child away. And, and there's a wonderful moment on the stage where there's supposedly a statue, a person who's supposedly a statue, of, I believe it's um, Hermione. Hermione. And they talk about where love comes from. And then Hermione comes to life, and love is a miracle. And, it's, and when Leontes accepts that love is a miracle from above and from outside the world, rather than interpreting it, love as, a, um, as this animalistic quid pro quo sort of thing, then he's redeemed and the play ends. And, and I thought that when I was reading the two plays, I thought that Shakespeare did revisit the story of King Lear with a new theory about love. I, I, I think too that uh, um, the, the, the story, for those who don't know it, of The Winter's Tale is that 
the you have another tyrant of a father, right, mm -hmm. who um, loses a daughter because he is such a tyrant. And then the end of the play in this scene, he gets to welcome her back. Um, and there's something um, I, I think that the, the Winter's Tale does put or seems to put a uh, give, gives a, a, a redemptive ending here, right? That he gets to have his daughter back. He can apologize. Mm -hmm. He can make amends. And I think it depends on if you want to do a feminist reading of that or not. So a feminist reading of King Lear might say, let's look at the daughters and let's let Lear suffer because <laughs> Lear, you know, he acted like a jerk and he acted, I mean, he's a terrible father and a terrible ruler. And so he should pay for it. He should die and he should watch his daughter um, who he has wronged die before him in this way. Now in The Winter's Tale, he gets to have a chance again. Do we want him to have a chance? I often, when I watch The Winter's Tale, think, Leontes should suffer more. Um, he's done some horrible things. And so should he get everything back in the end? Um, and so some feminist interpretations and, and performances of, of, um, of Winter's Tale have left some of those questions um, open. That is, do, does he actually, do they actually forgive him? His wife doesn't speak to him after she comes alive as a statue scene, she goes right to the daughter, who she hasn't seen for all these 16 years. So that the daughters get, a, or the daughter and the mother get a reunion, but um, in fact, will the wife forgive Leontes? Will the daughter? I think um, he still has some work to do. Yeah. I mean, to, yeah. Me, to me, that's the implication at the end of right. the play. You know, life, you get life back, but you don't necessarily get love back. You still, uh -huh. you still have some work to do on that. Yeah. But at least we've begun to have an understanding of what love is mm -hmm. rather than being totally out to lunch about it as mm -hmm. we are in King Lear. Mm -hmm. One more question. What did Shakespeare's contemporaries think of him? Well, there, there's, there, there aren't that many references, but there are a few. He was called an upstart crow by, by some who said that he, you know, sort of... The, the new writer on the scene who seems to be getting lots of attention. So is that jealousy? Is that a critique? Um, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, I, I imagine that it's true that there were some, there were relationships here. They wrote that Shakespeare collaborated with other dramatists. In fact, later in his career, we're pretty certain that some of those plays were written um, with, with, he wrote with somebody else, which suggests that there was a real um, a give and take here uh, that I think is part of what the experience of theater is, right? That kind of collaboration. And so um, it's clear that Shakespeare was, uh, the plays did very well in the theater generally. So he had to have, have gotten some credit for that and perhaps jealousy, um, but certainly uh, attention. I mean, there certainly was attention to Shakespeare. Well, the other thing is that I think we can ask what, what, if you have a very prolific writer quite often, what is the source of that? prolificity or and quite often it's not making it or it's not quite making it it's having to keep producing you don't get to um, have the fabulous um, over-the-top 10 million dollar bestseller mm. you you have to keep going and if you're and if and if creativity comes fairly easy to you then you just keep going and you just keep paying the bills. I think That's we see job. that. Yeah. yeah, I think we see that in, um, in various ways in a lot of English writers who have been quite prolific. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, or French too. I mean, I was just writing an introduction for Jules Verne. Jules Verne was incredibly, or Jules Verne, excuse me, was incredibly prolific, and it was, and, but his publisher hardly gave him anything. So there was no point at which he could retire and say, I've had enough, you know? He just kept on going. And so maybe Shakespeare wasn't the star that we think of him as. Maybe he was a guy who had to keep working because he had lots of um, um, dependents. And yeah. the one, one didn't, I mean, the writing plays was not that lucrative. Yeah. Shakespeare really only starts to make money when he becomes a shareholder in the company and starts to have a business interest. So plays, you know, you, you sold them, you got some money, and, and that was it. You didn't get royalties um, every time it was performed. Mm-mm. Finally, um, Jane, didn't you write an episode of Homicide Once, the TV show? The sort of, yeah. Sort of. I was just wondering how that experience was for you because you know, you're most famous as a novelist and as an essayist, and this was a dramatic mm. production. They didn't, do, they didn't use a word that I wrote. Really? <laughs> no, they just used my name. <laughs> uh, that was interesting to me because um, I had very two sort of mirror experiences. I wrote that episode of Homicide, and when I saw it on the TV, I realized they didn't use a thing I wrote. And, and I also then saw A Thousand Acres, and I realized that I'd written it all. You know, that she used a lot of, and she, she had the right to do it, but the screenwriter was stick, stuck very close to the novel, but her name was on. You know, so you can't, all of Hollywood is... It, you, you can't ever, ever generalize from what name is on the, on the screenplay. So in a few hundred years, when people are looking at homicide, it's just like Shakespeare for exactly. us today. <laughs> Who knows? But I don't think they'll be looking at homicide. You never know. Right. That's what's, I mean, yeah, Shakespeare's true. theater was public entertainment. You know, it was, you could pay a penny to see it. It was not necessarily great art. And yet, here it is. Yeah. It could be homicide That's next. That's true. <laughs> well, Gina Bloom and Jane Smiley, thank you. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.